Welcome to Profiles. I'm Josh Brewer. Today, we'll hear conversations with two authors. In the second half of the program, we'll hear from author and journalist Catherine Boo. Boo has been a staff writer for The New Yorker and is the author of Behind the Beautiful Forevers, which won a National Book Award for nonfiction in 2012. In it, Boo examines the interconnected lives of the residents of a slum in Mumbai. Claire McInerney hosts Catherine Boo in the second half of the program. First, Trish Curley will host Margaret Atwood. Atwood is the author of over 50 books. She is perhaps best known for The Handmaid's Tale. It turns 30 this year. Trish Curley interviewed Atwood in February. Atwood visited Indiana University as a guest of the College of Arts and Humanities Institute. You're listening to Profiles. I'm Josh Brewer. Margaret Atwood is the author of more than 40 volumes of poetry, children's literature, fiction, and nonfiction, which have been published in dozens of languages. Her latest work is Stone Mattress, Nine Tales, a book of short stories. She is best known for her novels, which include The Edible Woman and The Handmaid's Tale, which won the first Arthur C. Clarke Award for Science Fiction in 1987. In 2000, she won the prestigious Booker Prize for her novel The Blind Assassin. Her latest work, Mad Adam, is the final volume in a series that began with Oryx and Crake and continued with The Year of the Flood, and HBO is adapting the trilogy into a television series. Margaret Atwood, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. In the opening of the 2007 documentary film, Turning Pages, The Life and Literature of Margaret Atwood, someone says of you at the very beginning of it, I'm not sure you'll learn from her work who she is which I found hard to believe. Do you have a a response to that? Well, who is anyone, really? Of course, their work is going to be part of that description. But unless they're writing autobiography all the time, you are going to have to decide which bits really happened to them and which bits they made up. So Alice Munro said recently, yes, my, my work is sometimes autobiographical, but not as much as people think. So the only person who really knows what really happened to the person writing the book is the author. And it's very naive, of course, and we know this when we think about murder mystery writers. It's very naive to think that everything in a book is from the life of the author, because if it were, Agatha Christie would have been an astonishing serial killer. How, though, do your values show up in your work? Well, I don't know. You know, I, I, this, is, this is one of those questions that people like to try to ask because then it gives them a way. I mean, teachers like to try to ask it because it gives them a way to teach the books. But on the other hand, if you were writing that kind of book, first of all, it would be nonfiction. Second, it would be quite preachy, and it would be more like a self-help or inspirational or these are my values type of book. And I don't think that's how fiction works. So obviously I put stuff into my books that I know something about, uh, but which one of the characters? It's like saying which of the characters is saying what Shakespeare thought. Have a go. I, I think there are, broadly speaking, two kinds of writers, one in which just about everything they say is them. Uh, Milton is supposed to be that kind of writer. And the other kind is a much more polymorphous type of writer who creates different characters who may not speak for 
him or her at all. Uh, So I'm with John Keats, who said Shakespeare had as much pleasure in creating an Iago, a very, very bad person, as he did in creating an Imogen, a very, very good person. And I would say more. So it's the creation, not not the mouthpiecery, that interests me. You have said that you prefer to describe your work as speculative fiction rather than science fiction. What is your definition of speculative fiction? Well, first of all, I think there need to be two kinds because there is an obvious difference between a galaxy far, far away and in another time. That will never happen. And something that either is happening, could happen very soon, or already has happened on planet Earth in our societies now. So George Orwell called 1984, 1984, because it was 1948, rearranged lightly. He was really writing about Stalin and the Soviet Union under under Stalin and his vision of what England would be like under a similar kind of regime. And he was also writing about the very bad chocolate they had during World War II. Uh, so it wasn't planet far, far away. He was right about the interactive television, as it turns out, but television had already been developed. Uh, In fact, the Nazis tried using it in the 30s. They wanted to assemble people in movie theaters and broadcast Nazi rallies and things, but when they realized that the screens were so small that they became ant-like and people laughed at them, they canceled that program. So everything he put in there already existed. And there's a big difference between that kind of book, of which Brave New World is another one. He was really writing about Hollywood, which both frightened and and attracted him. That kind of world and distant planet where nobody has ever been, where you can pretty much do whatever you want as long as you're consistent with your own plan. To say that my books are science fiction gives a wrong impression of what's likely to be inside. So I'm in favor of truth and labeling. If it says bran flakes, I want there to be bran flakes in the box. And if it says science fiction, I will be very annoyed. If there is not a galaxy far, far away, I want something that doesn't exist. You know, I want some invention. I want something uh, which might theoretically maybe at some point exist, but we're far from it. And for speculative fiction, I want a build-out of one of the paths we're on right now to see where that leads. And that's what I can write. It's not that I don't like the other kind. I just can't write it. And I can't do dragons either. That would be called fantasy. And if you combine a galaxy far, far away and dragons, you've got science fiction fantasy. When you were nine years old, you read uh, George Orwell's book, Animal Farm. And you wrote an essay about it. I'm sure I suspect you weren't nine years old. But at some point in your life, you've written an essay, and you said, the whole experience was deeply disturbing, but I am forever grateful to Orwell for alerting me early to the danger flags I've tried to watch out for since. When did you write this essay? Oh, and a what, few years ago. What danger flags are you referring okay. to in the essay? So, Animal Farm, for those who haven't read it, the reason why it was disturbing was I knew nothing about Soviet socialism or Trotsky and Stalin or any of those things, I didn't realize that this was an allegory, that the pigs were those two different schools of uh, communism, that the sheep were (laughs) 
uh, the people who are brainwashed into going with the prevailing slogan that the horse was the believing worker who gets worked to death, et cetera, et cetera. I didn't understand any of that. I thought it was about real animals. And therefore, I was very upset when the, when the horse is betrayed. And instead of going off to a nice retirement home, he's carted off to be made into dog meat. Boo-hoo, I cried buckets. Uh, so <laughs> what are the dangers? Okay, among the dangers are the accepting of leaders' slogans uncritically. So uncritical acceptance of any platform that's being proposed Another danger flag is the manipulation of ideology to suit the hunger for power at those of those at the top. And any ideology with true believers can be manipulated in that way. You can watch that process at work um, when there's something going like uh, Islamic fundamentalism. You can see people vying with each other to get further and further to the extreme. Um, and you can even see it in some areas of um, Western democracy, um, people vying each, with each other to be more purist in some respect than, than the people right next to them. And, and traditionally, those on that power quest eliminate those next to them first. So the Bolsheviks got rid of the Mensheviks before they went to work on everybody else. Those are the kinds of, of things that one is always uh, rather worried about. And you're, you're always worried when uh, some crisis or other is used as an excuse to deprive people of their uh, previously enjoyed civil liberties. This is the 30th anniversary this year, 2015, of The Handmaid's Tale, which is probably your best-known work. The novel is set in, a, in the near future, in a totalitarian Christian theocracy. I wouldn't has, say Christian. Yeah. I would put Christian in quotation marks for the simple reason that the person after whom that religion is named would take a very dim view of the proceedings. The regime has overthrown the United States government. The culture is such that women are subjugated by men in a uh, deeply patriarchal culture. Let's say it is a a totalitarian dictatorship which has shaped the same way totalitarian dictatorships are, that is like a pyramid, with the men and women of the elite— having more power than everybody else, but the men within that arrangement, like the European monarchy during the Renaissance, having more power than the women. So if you were a king and queen married to each other, the king had more power, but the queen had more power than everybody else below. So there are elite wives in this arrangement um, who have more power, for instance, than the men cutting the grass. Okay? So it's not all women are subjugated to all men. It is, a, it is a pyramidal arrangement with the powerful at the top and everybody else in descending order. But within that, of course, as uh, powerful at the top always do, they attract to themselves or acquire more of the desirable things in that society, 
and amongst the desirable things in that society are children. So how to get children? And my model there was <laughs> quite clearly, that's what the Nazis did. They stole Polish children. That is what the Argentinian generals did. They killed the parents um, through the mountain planes and such, but they, they saved the babies and gave them out to uh, themselves. And there's now a problem in Argentina as these grown-up people discover who, what in fact happened to their parents and, and who these people were, who they thought were their parents. Did the success of the novel The Handmaid's Tale influence what you've written since? Um, no, it wasn't successful at first, I have to tell you that. I mean, it was moderately successful, but it wasn't. Uh, it didn't acquire the legs immediately that it has subsequently acquired. And I think that's partly an accident of history, um, by which I mean, at the time, some people said, this will never happen here. But as state by state, some somewhat similar things have happened it became a point of reference. So the more real it became, uh, the longer lived it also became. There was a difference in its reception in the different, various different countries. For instance, when it came out in the United Kingdom, uh, they, who had had their totalitarian religious theocracy Oliver Cromwell moment, uh, said, jolly good yarn, because they didn't feel anywhere close to doing that again. In Canada, uh, where there is enough of a split, there's enough division in various bits of Canada, so it would be hard to get them all uh, to pull for something like that together. They said nervously, could it happen here? And in the United States, even as far back as 1985, they said, how long have we got so already people were, were feeling worried about that, although not Mary McCarthy, who interviewed it in the New York Times and said, basically, it can't happen here. I, I never believe anyone who ever says about anything, it can't happen here. What was that tipping point moment or period where it really did start to take off in terms of public awareness? I think not too long after it came out. A lot of things start on the West Coast in this country, and uh, they got it immediately. In fact, a, a provocative radio interviewer said, oh, come on, Margaret, you were just joshing, weren't you? You were just really just, just a kind of joke, isn't it? And, the, and the, the call-in board just lit up like a Christmas tree. So he was being provocative on purpose, but he got the response that he was aiming for. So I think pretty soon then, and then... There was a film which came out in, I think, 1989, the year the Berlin Wall came down. In fact, The Handmaid's Tale was the first film that was shown both in West Berlin and in East Berlin the next day. And again, the reaction was very different. In, in the West, they were talking about uh, the director who was German and his artistic choices and the kind of things that people talk about when they talk about art. And in the East, they said... This was our life. Mm -hmm. They didn't mean the costumes. They didn't mean the theocracy. They meant the feeling that you couldn't trust anybody, that you couldn't talk to anybody, uh, that you were just kept under a kind of blanket of cotton wool. 
So that was very interesting for me to observe at the time. So I had visited East Germany when it was still under the Soviet socialist control. I'd visited it, I'd visited Poland and also Czechoslovakia while I was writing them. Handmaid's Tale, which I started in West Berlin on a German keyboard. That was a bit tricky. Were you intentionally visiting? No, it just happened. It just happened to happen. And the two that were the most tightly controlled were East Germany and Czechoslovakia, and Poland was quite loose. And it was predicted by various people that when the cracks in the wall occurred, they would occur in Poland first, and indeed that is what happened. I think that was already starting at that time. They'd made the mistake of murdering one priest too many. And Poland had, the resistance really was the Catholic Church. That's why Pope John Paul was so hugely uh, popular in Poland. You've written written a number of books about writing, which you say are not advice books about writing. There are other no, things. No, they're sort of map books, like maybe this is who you think you are and what you think you're doing. So is that your intention? Has that been your intention for writing those books about writing? Staying shy of the advice giving. There is but the... so much advice giving. There's, there's really a lot of it, and some of it's pretty good. And uh, a lot of it is by genre writers, but it applies to any kind of writing, really, except poetry. Uh, I think my idea was more to to position the writer's idea of what writing was or is and how it differs from the other arts. Uh, So it was more like that. It was a series, started as a series of lectures I gave at Cambridge University uh, in England, and the mandate was quite broad. It was supposed to appeal to students, to academics, but also to the general public try that. <laughs> anyway, it was lots of, it was fun, and um, but not advice books. It's a bit hard to give advice to people, really, because you don't know who they are. So what may work for one person is going to be quite wrong for another. One of the titles of, of one of the books you've written about writing is called Negotiating with the Dead. Yes. What is the significance of that? That is chapter six in the titles of the lectures. So it was the sixth one. And uh, that goes to the metaphors that writers use about, about what they're doing when they're writing, particularly what they're doing when they're going into a book, what they're doing when they're groping around in the dark, and uh, where they get their we like to say inspiration, but maybe it's not quite exactly that, where they get their blood transfusions. So there are a lot of uh, poems, stories, metaphors in which the, the direction is descent. You go down, you go down into the dark, you connect with something down there, and you bring back something to the light so that is the metaphor that I'm exploring, the most noteworthy examples being uh, Virgil's Aeneid and, and Dante's Inferno. And you've written a number of books about writing, which I find curious that you come, Have I? You come, you revisit it. I can't cite any other titles to you, but it seemed as if there were a bunch of them that, you know, over well, a 10-year period. Well, one of them is about Canadian metaphors of the North, so that's 
not about how to write or what are writers. It's about what people have written about that subject. It's called Strange Things, and that's from a poem that begins, Strange Things Are Done Neath the Midnight Sun by Robert Service. So that's not really about writing. I have some essay collections which have got some stuff about writing in them, but I've I've never written one of those here's how you write books. So I, I do write quite a bit about other people's writing. That I suppose that would be called literary criticism. Do you have a favorite Canadian writer? I don't have a favorite anything. And the reason I don't have a favorite anything is that if you have a favorite anything, everybody else hates you because it isn't them. But I have people that I write about. And right, right now, at this very minute, I'm writing about Alice Monroe for a collection on her work that's going to be done again by Cambridge University Press in England. So a number of different people are writing about different books and stories and features and things, and I'm writing about Lives of Girls and Women, which is her only novel. We've got about a minute left in our conversation. I wanted to ask you about what I mentioned in the opening, which is the work that you're doing now with HBO. Yes, Darren Aronofsky. How is that going? Black Swan fame. Well, I think it's going quite well. I haven't seen the pilot script yet, so I've conferred with the team on various occasions, and we email back and forth when they have uh, questions. But making a TV series, of course, it's a it's a labor. You have to plan out different the different seasons. You have to have the cast of characters. You have to know more about them than you might learn from the actual books. So they're really beavering away. They're putting in a lot of midnight hours. How long has this project been going on? How, how long this, have you been involved in it? This project has been going on, I think, probably for about a year from uh, first conclusions to this, the point that we're at. But that, when I say going on, I mean that, of course, the contracts all had to be gone through. All of that had to be gone through. First, we had to meet and talk and figure whether this was going to work and then how we were going to do it and then, um, or I should say, how they are going to do it. (laughs) And then uh, go on from there. So I I think they're making progress. They identified a a main writer. You're going to need more than one writer for that. So they have their main writer and they're galloping along. How has the process been for you? Well, I'm just the writer of the books. So it's, it's a bit like Handmaid's Tale in which you're there. You can go visit the set maybe for one day, but they don't want you hanging around <laughs> interfering with people. You're there to be consulted on things like what did they have for breakfast in case there's a problem with those kinds of questions. But you're not, unless you're engaged as a script writer, and I have written scripts, Unless you're that person writing the script, you're not engaged on a daily basis. And you have not? For this one? It's it's a job for a younger person, quite frankly, and it's a job. So I'd rather be writing books myself. Any sense of when it'll be done, ready for broadcast? Well, no. In a perfect world, uh, they might start filming in this year. But that would mean it wouldn't actually launch until next year. But I don't have a timeline on that yet. Uh, the thing that everybody doing these series has to do is make a gripping pilot. 
So I think that's what they're involved in right at the moment. I have been having a huge amount of fun, speaking of television series, reading the French historical series, which was a great inspiration to uh, the man who wrote the Game of Thrones novels. And it's a historical series about the Capetian kings, beginning with Philip IV, who burnt the Knights Templar, and uh, continuing on through his descendants until they all peter out and are replaced with the Valois. So it's got everything you might imagine. So burnings at the stake, eviscerations, horrible tortures, secret stranglings, poisonings. You know, they were just doing each other in at a great rate in order to get hold of the of the monarchy. So it is a lot like uh, Game of Thrones, except that Game of Thrones also has dragons. Margaret Atwood, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Trish Curley interviewed Margaret Atwood in February. Atwood visited Indiana University as a guest of the College Arts and Humanities Institute. You're listening to Profiles. I'm Yael Cassander. Catherine Boo is an author and journalist. Her award-winning book, Behind the Beautiful Forevers, won the National Book Award in 2012. Boo spoke with Claire McInerney in October of last year. I'm Claire McInerney, and welcome to Profiles on WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers, and get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is journalist and writer Catherine Boo. Boo has spent her career writing the stories of those living in poverty. She won the Pulitzer Prize for Public Service for her story on mistreatment and abuse in group homes for the mentally disabled in Washington, D.C. In 2002, she received a MacArthur Genius Grant, and most recently, her book, Behind the Beautiful Forevers, Life, Death, and Hope in a Mumbai Undercity, won the National Book Award for Nonfiction. Catherine Boo, thank you for being here today. Claire, it's my pleasure. I'd like to start by talking about Behind the Beautiful Forevers. For our listeners who haven't read it, can you give a brief summary to start off with? It's the story of families who live... um, in a slum on a land on land owned by the Mumbai airport. And it's um, a community that is surrounded by five luxury hotels. And, and at the time that I started my reporting, India's economy was the second fastest growing in, in the world. And I felt that there wasn't enough real reporting about how that new wealth um, was affecting the futures of, of families in historically poor communities. So I decided just to sit there for a couple of years, get to know the families very well, and watch which one, which families would get out of poverty and which families wouldn't and why. 
And so I'm going to have you start by reading a passage which I think shows from um, Abdul, the main character's point of view, kind of their mindset of how to go about their lives in these situations. As ashamed as Abdul felt when other boys witnessed his fearfulness, he thought it irrational to be anything else. While sorting newspapers or cans, tasks that were more a matter of touch than of sight, he studied his neighbors instead. The habit killed time and gave him theories, one of which came to prevail over the others. It seemed to Abdul that in Anawadi, fortunes derived not just from what people did or how well they did it, but from the accidents and catastrophes they dodged. A decent life was the train that hadn't hit you, the slumlord you hadn't offended, the malaria you hadn't caught. And while Abdul regretted not being smarter, he believed he had a quality nearly as valuable for the circumstances in which he lived. He was alert. My eyes can see in all directions, was another way he put it. He believed he could anticipate calamity while there was still time to get out of the way. The one leg's burning was the first time he'd been blindsided. Reading the book, we learn about these people, their ambitions, their hopelessness, their interactions with each other in the slum. And your writing does a very good job of avoiding what you call poverty porn. So will you explain kind of what you mean by that and how you avoided it through your writing? My work, typically, whether it's in the, the work that I do in the United States or the work that I've done in India, involves two very distinct strands. It involves long-term immersion with low-income people, spending enough time with people so that I'm able to describe them in their acting, thinking, imagining complexity instead of giving the usual two-dimensional representative poor person caricatures that we so often read. But the other part of my work that is very dear to my heart is that I use investigative techniques, including investigations that use Freedom of Information Act requests to examine how government programs for the poor really work or how charitable programs aiming to help people improve their lives are actually actually experienced by people on the so-called ground. There's an enormous amount of money sent by capitals, whether it's here in Indiana or in Washington, D.C. or in Delhi, that never makes it to the poor people's end of the street. And so a part of my work is trying to shine a light on where that money really goes. And so you write a lot about that in the book, um, this corruption we see. The police cover up the murder of a child. Um, a family is imprisoned without a trial and things of that nature. So will you talk a little bit about this corruption that you saw firsthand reporting this book, including charitable money that didn't make it to the um, slums and how what it did go toward? It's important to note that at this moment, the, the moment that I was reporting in India, it was 2008, and there was an unprecedented amount of money being devoted to social programs for the poor. And at the same time, international relief efforts had never been bigger. There was an enormous amount of money going into communities like this. But what I found was that corruption had, had siphoned off so much of this money, government and charitable money, that for the people in the slum, they saw corruption itself as one of the true opportunities that remained. And in my book, I describe 
a really quite remarkable woman named Asha. She's 40 years old. She's a mother of three remarkable children, especially her daughter, Manju, who's poised to become the first female college graduate in the history of the Anawati slum. And her plan is to get a piece of some of the anti-poverty money swirling around, really um, money for the education of child laborers and the girl and girls and the disabled, and to put it in her own pocket so that her daughter's future could be secured. And this happens time and time again in low-income communities. And when when I asked Asha about, you know, why would she participate in this corruption that essentially beggared the chances of other poor people like herself? She said, why is it my corruption when the big people say that it's right? And I think that's the essential question that, that we can ask in the United States and in other countries, which is that when the people in power set the rules of the game, what is right and wrong? You know, in, in many regards, the ethics of society are set by the people at the top. So Asha's, Asha's asking a deep philosophical question um, to which I certainly don't know the answer. You said part of the proceeds of this book go back to Anawadi, mm-hmm. correct? How do you avoid the corruption then of this money going to them and making sure it goes to the purpose that you intend? Mostly because I'm very intimately involved in it. And so now are some of the young people in the slum. And so they will they will tell me when the teacher doesn't show up. I mean, right now I'm in the middle of a quite a big fight with an NGO that I pay handsomely to do the work in um, in Anawadi. And... You know, it's it's a battle, and you certainly, you know, it's 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 an incredibly humbling experience to try to do such work. And 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 I am forgiving of nonprofit groups that do difficult work in inhospitable places. It is there's going to be some leakages, some you know, in some cases. But what I was seeing, the discrepancies between what what many charities were claiming and what was actually happening on the ground. Were, were staggering. They were they were shocking to me, and I blame uh, journalism in part for for this this gap between um, perception and belief. Because too often, journalists writing about low income communities will make a private alliance with, say, an NGO, and it will allow the NGO to pick the characters that they're writing about, and the, the people in the NGO will essentially be guaranteed a treatment as heroes, as saintly people. And so that makes that easier to do the journalism. It saves some money. But the problem is that, that particularly in America, we have this sense that half of the world's poor are being guided through life by saintly figures who want nothing better than to see them shine. And that's, you know, it would be really cool if that became more of a reality in the lives of poor people in this country and in India and everywhere else. But um, today we're not there. When you were reporting in India, did you ever venture outside Anawadi to talk to politicians or policymakers or those people and, you know, hear from them about what their efforts were um, compared to what you were actually seeing when you were in Anawadi. Yeah, I, I spoke to to a great number of people, including philanthropists, um, government officials, judges, doctors in public hospitals. But one of the most interesting things that I heard um, from politicians and from people who were running social programs 
in Delhi was that they didn't have good information about what was happening on the so-called ground. You know, so, so there were many people in, in positions um, of power who cared about the growing inequality in the country um, and, and certainly cared about why an enormous amount of social spending wasn't changing outcomes. So they were, they, you know, contrary to the stereotypes that we might have that, that say that, that governments don't welcome criticism, many people were receptive to, to, um, to granular factual information that helped them to make programs better. I find, you know, in my reporting, I found that microfinance programs that are often considered a real way out of poverty were being redesigned by women in low-income areas so that they were exploiting women who were slightly poorer in the slums. Now, that doesn't mean that microfinance has no role in our anti-poverty strategy. It just means that you can build a better microfinance um, program by understanding how it gets subverted on the ground. The more information that we have, the better we can um, make our assaults on the structural poverty that we see in, in any country. Listening to Profiles on WFIU, I'm Claire McInerney, and our guest today is Catherine Boo. Boo is a journalist who has written extensively about the lives of those living in poverty. We're talking about her book, Behind the Beautiful Forevers, which chronicles the lives of people living in a slum called Anawadi in Mumbai, India. One of the notable things of the book is there's a lot of characters, and we see how their lives play out over a few years. And one of the things I noticed was a lot of the characters that we get to know the best are children. And so I wanted to know why you chose to tell this story mainly through the eyes of the children of the slum. Well, what was so striking to me when I read other nonfiction accounts of people in, in impoverished situations in India is how often those accounts focused on men. And I came to see that that, that was mainly because the writers were men. And when you were in low-income communities in urban areas, one of the really, really striking things is that women and their teenage children are often the real driving forces of uplift. They're the ones who really believe that, that, that if they just work a little harder, they can, they can smash this barrier between the slum world and the rich world. And so I wanted to, you know, I, 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 I'm not interested as a writer in just writing poignant snapshots of poor children in some, you know, miserable place. I'm looking at how people get out of poverty. I'm interested in the infrastructure of opportunity that allows people to change their lives for the better because that's what the people in those communities are interested in. They're not just wringing their hands saying, woe is me. They're saying, how do I make it better for my, my family? And a lot of the, the thinking and imagining and hopefulness derives from, again, the women and children. After finishing the book, what do you want people who got to know these characters and saw the ups and downs over three years, what did you want people to walk away with? I guess I'm trying to do two things at once. On some level, I just want to tell an intimate, factually accurate, grounded story of the blistering effort that it takes to get out of poverty in this age of global markets when they're is too little that's steady, and people are competing very hard on a small terrain for very little. But at the same time, I'm trying to open up 
a space where people can think about what works and what doesn't in, in, in issues of our responses to poverty. And to try to look with some fresh urgency at problems that desperately need solving. I think that what, what I've come to see in my career as a journalist is that change doesn't happen unless two elements are present. One, people need a very clear, precise description of a specific injustice to care. And they need to have a sense of the intelligence and capacities of the people who suffer that injustice. Because if they don't have a true understanding of what gets squandered on this planet, there's really no no urgency about changing the status quo. So that's my challenge as a writer. How do I bring the reader in Indiana into that close contact where they can absorb some of my sense of urgency and um, start t- taking seriously the possibility that there are resources out there. It is possible for things to get better because, you know, I think a great deal of what is said to be intractable and insoluble in this world um, really isn't intractable at all. I'm going to switch to another piece of your work that addresses this issue a little more closer to home. The Marriage Cure was a New Yorker article you wrote a few years ago about mainly following two single women in Oklahoma City who lived in the housing projects there. And so I was wondering if you would share how you came to choose these two women and tell a little bit about them, because they tell very different stories about poverty in America. Mm. Well, at at the time um, that I wrote this story, um, there was an initiative of um, the first Bush administration to to encourage marriage amongst poor people as a means um, of lifting them out of poverty. And so there was there was this sort of cutting edge program in Oklahoma that tried to encourage women to marry. And what so I, I, I went um, to a church in in Oklahoma City, and the two women who were most interested in getting married were Kim and Corianne. And Kim was a very young woman who came from a, a difficult family. Her father was on the lamb and her, you know, just, but she, so she, she was trying to, she talked about a solid relationship in marriage and she said it was like, it was like Hawaii. You've never seen it, but you know it's got to be beautiful. And Corianne had, um, her husband had left her and she was raising five children on her own and her children called her Reverend Dr. Brothers because she was, she was, she was a, a, a woman of, true wisdom, and um, but she was exhausted doing it on her own. And so I think that when you choose people to follow as a writer, you're following people who um, I often gravitate to people who I can learn from. And, you know, to this day, I learn from Corianne and, and Kim, who are, who are um, doing well all these years later. And, and you're following them and you're recording them, and you're not just seeing the problems in the, their societies, which um, which need to be addressed, but you're you're also learning from the ways in which people work around the problems in their societies. What never fails to inspire me is the way in which individuals 
who have few resources and little education manage to find solutions to problems that, that someone like me with, with education and privilege would um, probably just run away from and, you know, curl up crying in a corner. Um, I, I am I'm just constantly uh, amazed at the, the, it's such a cliche to say that resilience, um, but really the, the ability that people have in difficult times to reinvent themselves um, over and over and over again. So about the reporting, when you report these stories, you really have to be immersed into their lives to get the level of details you have and to get the insights into their everyday lives and their thoughts. Will you talk about, with any of the work you've done in the United States or in Anawadi, how far do you go? I mean, where are you sleeping when you're there? What are you eating? How often are you with them? There's a great photojournalist named Carol Guzzi, and she always said, when they invite you to breakfast, bring a tent. And you want to spend as much time as you possibly can with people in order to understand their lives in full. And that requires a tremendous amount of trust. And it's a real risk for people to allow a journalist into their their own lives. I often tell people, boy, I don't think I would let somebody do to me what I'm asking you to do. And so let's just let that, you know, that discomfort hang there. It's not, you know... Many people that I spend time with say, I, I'm happy to let you learn about my life, but don't ever write down my name. You know, It's my life, and I don't want to share it. But there are some people who, um, and many people in this world, who, who, who have thought to themselves long before I came along that if people really understood my situation, they would be less likely to judge it. If people un- really understood how bad this public school is, then they would understand that, that my son's capacities, my daughter's capacities, aren't really reflected by her grades. A lot of people have a sense of the great injustices that are shaping their futures, and, and they welcome the opportunity to some, for somebody to patiently explore those injustices with them. I think that and often when I get to, when I'm done with the reporting and I'm alone with my laptop, I'm not trying just to tell the story. I'm trying to honor the story because the material is so clear and so urgent that, you know, I need to, to make myself better and better and better to do it justice. It's a very tricky world out there. And so much of what happens, particularly to low-income people, just disappears altogether. It leaves no trace on the public record. It, it, it you know, disappears down Hannah Arendt's memory hole. And so, so if I can put just a little bit of it on the public record and to show, again, the people whose lives are changed by a social or an economic or a philanthropic failure, then I feel like, you know, I've done my work for the day. Is it tough as a writer? Because um, it's clear in Behind the Beautiful Forevers, you are in their homes. You're in the shacks. You're in the hospital. You're seeing these things firsthand. Are there any challenges when trying to then write it so it's understandable to readers who weren't in those situations? Yeah, I mean, that's the essence of writing, right? It's like it's difficult to communicate. And, and, you know, and how do you find... And readers are impatient today. They're not going to give you a thousand pages to say this is what it's like in some slum you don't care about 
that you've never heard of, families whose names you might find difficult to pronounce. So yes, I mean, that is the challenge, is do you have enough reporting material to have the scene that helps bring the reader right into it? Do you have the detail that is going to make, of the public hospital, that is going to make the reader's heartbeat a little faster in the way that your heartbeat when you were there and you were seeing it? So it's this, you know, this, in a way, you have to stay alert to to the details that that really haunt you, the details that keep you up at night, because there's no one else you can check. Does this? Do you care about this? You, you know, you 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 have to use your own judgment. But but you hope that human beings are enough the same, and human beings, I believe, have enough of an innate sense of justice that when you have the information that shows or suggests that something is terribly wrong. I mean, most people are not going to say, let's continue on with that. They're going to say, hey, we can do better. This isn't fair. So, you know, you have to trust your instincts and hope that there's a lot of human connective tissue out there, I think, that that transcends ethnic and class and geographic lines. And I think that we just have to, you know, I have to, I don't even know if it's true, Claire. I just hope it's true because otherwise you can't do the work, you know, really if we're totally different and, you know, there's no possibility that people are going to care about what happens in a place like Anawati. That's painful and I don't even want to know it. I've got to operate on on the hope that um, that if you put it out there as best you can, that, that people are in their own idiosyncratic ways going to to respond. It took, in a community like Anawati, where only six people in 3,000 had permanent work, it took constant reinvention, constant effort to figure out, you know, what it might be, what you could do that was going to spring you out of poverty. And what was remarkable was how hopeful people were that it would happen. I, I, I remember one of my first meetings with Karim Hussein, the father of Abdul, well, who's, um, about whom I read earlier. And I asked him, so, so who here has left for somewhere better? And he said, oh, lots of people. And I said, oh, well, tell me who. And he thought about it, and he said, well, it's going to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. And so what's the status on some of those kids that are profiled so deeply in the book? What, what are they up to now? Abdul Hussein has... Um, you know, the, the cheap thing to say would be that Abdul Hussein realized his dream. He is out of Anawati now. He's living in a community with clean air. Um, and happily, he's married and he's raising a son. And his deepest hope for his son is that he will never have to work in garbage. And I think I think that dream will be realized. But um, don't come to me for easy, happy endings. Um, a childhood in poverty does damage. The fact that Abdul is barely literate makes it very, very difficult for him going forward. So the struggle isn't over now for Abdul. But, uh, you know, I think his life is heading with fits and, by fits and starts in the right direction. You talk about it took a great deal of trust on mm-hmm. the part of the people you write about to let you in. Do you ever consider the repercussions of what might happen when you're writing or do you just tell the story as you no, see I, it? You know, this, it was strange because my, my book came out and um, 
basically a lot of what happened would have been any writer's dream. It was, you know, my book, it was on the cover of the New York Times book review, and it got a lot of great reviews and all that. And I didn't enjoy any of it. For the first six months, I felt sickened because I was so afraid that the corrupt officials that I name, using their real names, in the book were going to retaliate, not against me, but against the low-income people that I wrote about. I was sick with fear, and it was only after about six months that I came to see that suddenly the people in Anawati felt they had more power because they were in the book, and that suddenly public officials were more careful about what happened in Anawati because they knew that that readers were watching, and sometimes Australians were visiting. Australians would come to the slum and meet everybody. It was always Australians. Then I began to relax and, and to began to experience the fact that I had a book out and everything, you know. But but at the time, um, I was pretty stricken. But one thing that I always remembered in that time is that the part of you know, I write about crimes, including murders, that were covered up. I write about gross violence that happens against poor people who have absolutely no possibilities of redress. Um, it took a while for you to become the fly on the wall. Was there a certain point though where you realized <laughs> they knew that what you could do? for them was powerful, and you weren't just someone there taking photos and taking videos. I don't think any of us were sure what was going to happen. And one of the things that I, I, I try to do when I'm talking to people about being involved in projects of these kinds is that you cannot predict the outcome. You absolutely don't know. That, that you know, it's essentially you're asking them to take a risk and make a leap of faith. And you know, I, I can't emphasize enough that the people who I write about, whether they're they're in in Mumbai or in Oklahoma City or in Washington D.C., risk way more than I ever have to tell their stories. They are taking just a spectacular risk, and and um, there's all this nonsense that we, you know the the journalist is so brave and so fearless. Well, the people when you pick up some nonfiction that uses real names the next time, think it's not the journalist that's brave for doing it. It's the people in those books that are brave for allowing their stories to be told. Um, and I don't think that we honor that enough. I've been speaking today with writer Catherine Boo. Thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. Claire, it was really fun. Thanks. This is Claire McInerney for Profiles. Catherine Boo spoke with Claire McInerney in October of 2012. Boo was visiting Indiana University as a part of the Media School Speaker Series. Thanks for listening to Profiles. I'm Josh Brewer. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Pascash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.